Decentralized applications, or dApps, are a growing movement of applications being built using blockchain technology to invent new business. There are now thousands of dApps disrupting the status quo, and you can choose from thousands of blockchains to build on. Ripple uses the XRP Ledger for global payments. The decentralized infrastructure of the XRP Ledger makes payments happen fast, with zero failure rate for messaging, and enables their financial institutional clients to expand into new markets around the world. So cross-border payments is one proven, well-known use case for the XRP Ledger. We are going to hear about other real-world solutions and why a developer would choose the XRP Ledger blockchain to use. Professor Dr. Radu State is a chief scientist in network management and cybersecurity at the University of Luxembourg. He targets research topics and creates high impact beyond the academic community at the international leading interdisciplinary center for security, reliability, and trust. We're interested in finding out what all of this means. Welcome, Professor State. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lauren. And please call me Radu, Professor. Sounds too formal. It's a very good pleasure to be here. And thank you for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure having you, Radu. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Some mathematician by training. I'm basically Master of Science in Mathematics and, com- and uh, Computer Science at Johns Hopkins University. I got my PhD in France, and then afterwards I became a professor in France. And a few years back, I moved to Luxembourg and created my own research group, which is SEDAN, Service and Data Management, where we work on a very applied topics related to cybersecurity, data management, blockchain, in a relationship with our local industry, which is heavily fintech-oriented, since Luxembourg is one of the basically financial hubs in Europe. So when did you first get introduced to blockchain? It was about six or seven years ago, and it was 2014, I remember it, because I was attending a cybersecurity conference in northern France. There is a yearly conference where it's kind of mixed private and government-driven, so a lot of army, a lot of police. And the topic of the conference, how can can we stop Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin was associated to ransomware, and it was considered like, you know, the Silk Road had been at that time when it was operating. So basically the whole topic was what can we do in terms of cybersecurity to stop it? And that was the kind of first time I heard about it. In the same year, I had a kind of unpleasant surprise in my own team. We had a very powerful GPU system that we are using at that time moment for some machine learning projects. And some of my PhD students were complaining that they could not run some jobs on the machine because the machine was busy, 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 until I realized that another PhD student of mine was very smart. He was using it to do Bitcoin mining. So he was using a very powerful GPU system in the team to do Bitcoin mining. And that's when I realized, hey, This topic is interesting. I mean, it's not only about something criminal, but there are people who are really liking and they're uh, basically involved in doing Bitcoin mining. And in in this way, I got involved in the community. Now, in a more serious way, research-wise, and I met Evan Schwartz, who was working for Ripple, and he came to Luxembourg. And we had a lot of meetings, a lot of chats, a lot of talking about uh, crypto, about the blockchain. And uh, then I realized what Interledger was, which was a protocol developed by Evan and Stefan Thomas for doing payment across multiple blockchains, across multiple ledgers. And really, I got fascinated by the idea because it was not only about Bitcoin, not only about a cryptocurrency, but it was about making payments from different ledgers to different ledgers. And these ledgers can be fiat currency, but they can be also digital. And I found this idea amazing. And that is when I really got involved in um, more research, but related to, to the interledger network. I haven't heard that before, where someone was actually invited to a high-profile conference to stop blockchain out of fear that the criminal activity would be predominant. 
And then you went on to see how there would be other use cases. It wasn't just about fraud or theft. Your PhD student brought that to light for you. We heard that you connected with Evan Schwartz and Stefan Thomas in Luxembourg as they were building out ILP and the COIL office. And you were very interested in Interledger. I don't think we've discussed Interledger on the show before. Can you tell us a little bit about what Interledger does? Imagine that you have one currency on one side and you want to pay another currency on the other side. So let's say you have XRP and you have to pay in Bitcoin, or you want XRP and you want to pay USD, or you want basically for any currency to another currency. So what you can do is you can basically use connectors, which, well, have position on multiple ledgers, which are capable to do the payment for you. So you can try to find the best payment in terms of fee that you are willing to pay in order to pay from one account to another one. So cross ledgers and have a decentralized exchange being able to deal with these multiple exchanges from one currency to another one until the end point. Interledger or ILP is kind of like a bridge or it creates interoperability between currencies. Exactly. But you can also do micropayments. It can be very efficient for micropayments because most payment systems they are not efficient when we're dealing with micropayments, like paying half a cent. Nobody nobody's willing to do a payment for half a cent because you know the fees will be too high. But at the end, if you can do multiple payments, basically and do streaming payments, that's something that had not been done until now. So you can just pay as you go. You want to consume some video content, you can just pay every half of cent for one minute that you are consuming. And I think that's a very interesting idea. It can be extended to web monetization or many other type of digital assets that you want to, and content that you want to extend it to. Yeah, and I know quite a lot of the Ubri academics within the network are working on Interledger. Are there any other universities that you're collaborating with? So we're working quite closely with Northeast University in Boston, researcher and a team led by Christina Nizarotaro, the professor. Uh, the topic that we are addressing is related to how can we provide overlay networks to payment networks like Interledger, for instance. Overlay networks have adv- advantages, so they can make sure that maybe your payment or the payment network is not affected when you have network level problems like BGP attacks. Maybe it's a little bit too complex, but BGP is a kind of thing that keeps the internet together. It's called, it stands for Border Gateway Protocol and it's a routing protocol that is linking different network or different autonomous systems together. This is how you can, let's say, send a packet from Deutsche Telekom, which is one big ISP to Sprint, for instance. You have this kind of protocol that makes sure that they are working together. So we are working on making overlay networks that can make sure that your payment network can be Interledger, for instance, works even if the network is down or parts of the network are down, such that you can instantaneously reroute the payment at the network level. You've taught blockchain and big data cryptocurrencies. Can you explain to our listeners how decentralized applications work? Sounds complicated, but the idea is very simple. So let's say a pure traditional app runs, but you have a front end, let's say a website, and then you have a back end. Most cases can be kind of database and you have a glue in between them. So somehow you take the data from the front end and you push it to the database. Can be HTTP, can be message broker, basically think about big data systems, can be a decentralized message broker. But again, it's kind of front end, back end, and some glue. Decentralized apps, well, the back end is getting distributed. You, you don't have some central entity that is responsible like a database to do some processing. You have a distributed 
and set of entities which make sure that on one hand, the data is replicated correctly. So you have a resilience. You also have the capability to deal with, let's say, this kind of distributed entities which are not under one administrative control. That means they can run on different systems. They can be run in different administrative domains. But at the end, you have the consensus. You, you can make sure that there is no way one entity can either in a voluntary way or in a malicious way try to delay the service or uh, play uh, malicious or being what is called a Byzantine uh, player, which means being a player that on a voluntary basis will try to make sure to disrupt your service. And this is a nice part in a decentralized app. You can be sure that it will run, it will be secure, it will be safe, even if it's run on a maybe untrusted environment. All right, so let's test my learning. I'm going to pretend that you were just my professor in class, and I want to make sure I understood what you said. So dApps have a back-end code running on a decentralized network instead of a centralized server, and they use open APIs to build a front-end user interface, and they use the blockchain for data storage. Like that? Exactly. Well, they use the blockchain for data storage, but it also makes sure that if, let's say, one of the entity that is providing this kind of decentralized backend one would not like to store the data or would, not, would like to execute something else, it's not going to be happen. It's, it's not only storage, it's also about the logic of the execution that you do in a decentralized app. It's, it's not just a decentralized Excel file. You also have the business logic, which is part of the execution that is done in a distributed so manner. So organizes the data. Data, but also the flow of how the data is being processed. Got it. And what are the benefits of DAP development? I think the benefits is like you, you can be sure that you don't depend on a cloud provider who's to run your backend. Just recently, two days ago, a big cloud provider in France burnt, the whole data center burnt. Thousands of clients realized that there was no replication, that the whole thing is done. The whole data center burnt, in fact. Hospitals, they are, now they have to go back to paper and pen. Even some online games that had all the data stored in this data center and now it's gone. Player lost all the data, all their achievements. The airport again, they lost all the key systems. So uh, keeping data centralized, it's also a big problem in terms of security. If you don't have good business recovery practice in place, in case you have a data loss, you have a big problem. While if you're dealing in a decentralized way, well, there is always a node that will probably keep the whole part of the data and being replicated. So from the Programming point of view, it's not that difficult. Right now, we have quite good programming environments to write decentralized apps. So it's easy to learn. It's not very complex. Hearing with dApps, you get complete data integrity, and you also have zero downtime. I mean, if, if something goes wrong, you can never lose the data because it's appearing on all the validators or all the nodes. It exists not just in one location that could burn down. So it's almost tamper-proof? Is it? Environmental condition proof? It's environment and condition proof, but I think it's also temper proof against attacks. So as long as you make sure that, let's say, the number of honest nodes, it's uh, sufficient enough, or let's say you don't have that many bad guys as a majority, then you make sure that uh, it's also attacker proof. Especially when we see right now, almost on a daily basis, cybersecurity incidents popping up everywhere. So uh, a lot of hacks, a lot of, let's say, data exposure and data leaks, making sure that nobody can at least delete your data or can uh, destroy it. It's something that it's more than welcome. So there are many blockchains. 
out there to be able to use for your work. So when you're thinking about supporting your work, what are the properties that you look for in a blockchain? It has to have a testnet that we can play with, that we can test. Secondly, support in terms of APIs, so programming languages. Some of the apps for the developers would like to have Node.js because it's easier for them. Some others would like to have at least a Golang interface or a Python interface. So you need to have at least three or four different application programming interfacing, allowing you to write programs against the blockchain. And finally, it has to be fast. It has to be fast. You have to be able to see that if you write a transaction, it's committed there in five, six seconds, especially for some of the use cases that I'm interested in. I would say the main important feature that I look into when I select a blockchain. And the number of nodes. Again, it shouldn't be just a blockchain that runs on two nodes, but the more nodes they are, the more realistic it is and the more, let's say, the more sure you can be that it will scale. If you see that there is a blockchain and it's running on already on four or 500 nodes, then you can trust it. If it's just a kind of blockchain running on two nodes and you don't really know the specification, how it's being done, how it has been tested, then it's very difficult to trust it and to use it. So it has to be also open in terms of specification and obviously also in terms of the code that it's running. This has to be open source and open to audit and to review. So you've been using the XRP ledger. So is that why you chose it? Because it's fast, there's a test net, there's many nodes all over the world. Exactly. That was one of the main criteria we used into it. Also because it's very interesting from a research point of view, we can customize it, we can play with some features, we can do a lot of experiments. So it's quite easy to change it once you're proficient and you have some motivated PhD students who are willing to, to play. Okay, Radu, let's get to the fun part of the conversation. What are you building? We have a lot of projects with industry in Luxembourg, financial industry. Some of our projects, are, some of them were linked to micropayments, especially to ethical finance. And we build such a tool and we build it on basically XRP ledger. And um, we kind of offered it to our partner. Um, some of the cooler projects that we did um, recently were using the XRP basically blockchain for um, storing receipt data. One year ago, we realized that, well, there is a lot of printed paper. You go to the shop, you pay, and you basically get a receipt. We even looked into how many trees are being cut in Europe alone just to get the paper that you normally throw away. Yeah, I've actually never thought about it, but the way you describe it, it does not seem ecologically friendly. It's not at all ecologically friendly. Even if you recycle the paper and the paper is being recycled, it's not ecologically friendly. In the past, it was not also very healthy because the ink that was used for the receipt was a little bit cancerigen. That thing was discovered, but it still was not healthy. Now with the COVID, we try to touch as less as possible what we can touch in shops. So again, getting a paper-based receipt doesn't make sense. So we thought about making it easier for customers to get a receipt. We didn't want to use email addresses because we don't want to get emails from your shop. So what we did, we use a, a simple idea, which is the moment you are paying, you just show you kind of a code and we use a pastry code, kind of portable ID for your payments in order to avoid people having long wallet addresses, which have no sense for everybody. Very difficult to remember. You have something like your email address. It's an ID. And you can basically interact with the infrastructure and get a payment address for that 
ID. So we use the same concept, but instead of getting the payment information, we got just an information where we can send the receipt. So I can use my email address to pay for something in a local shop, and then they'll also email me back a receipt. And is what you built like seamless functionality? So for someone like me that doesn't understand coding, I can work this mechanism easily? Exactly. The moment you just pay your pay string, and then the receipt will arrive immediately in your account. Why you might be needing a blockchain for it? Because in some countries in Europe, you make to make sure that the receipts are stored in a secure and tamper-proof way. Because it allows the regulator to check if the shops have been printing the receipts. So it's a week for doing the audits. The Wait, I could also part, have one single place that I'm storing all of my backup data for my own accountant for tax purposes. That's great. I mean, right now I have too many physical receipts all over the place. And sometimes I don't remember to save them and it's a problem. So this would keep everything in one accessible place. Exactly. But also the grocery receipts. So we went to the grocery shops here in Luxembourg to show them the idea. And what people liked when we showed them the concept was that imagine the number of data points that you generate with the grocery receipts. Right now, you are not in control of your data. I mean, this data has been collecting point of sales, which are terminals that are being used in the shops when you do the payment. They might use the data to learn about your behavior, to learn what products are being sold. But this data belongs to you normally. So imagine that you have control of your data and your decision to share the data or to maybe monetize the data to companies who are really willing to buy it. Because you might say, well, I want people to learn my behavior. Maybe I'm getting some monetization. Maybe I can get something out of it. But it's you, your decision and your control of your data. I love the other day that you're putting control of data in the consumer's hands. Because right now it feels like all these companies know way too much information about me. They're pushing advertisements on me and trying to contact me too frequently. So it's nice to know that there'll be a mechanism for us to control it ourselves. Exactly. If you could keep your data in, let's say, in a wallet and being paid on blockchain when you provide this data to companies that might need it, that's a way to do it. And related to this project, we also worked on securing the pay string concept, adding some privacy, building a notary bill on a blockchain to make sure that the data that you want to provide, the pastering data will be accessible only to entities that you authorize. That's something that we also built and we presented in a hackathon. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the hackathon. You recently had students who won a hackathon with pastering secure. How did you first learn about pastering such that you wanted to apply it in your work? We learned about it uh, last June. We are part of the UBRI initiative from Ripple. We have some quite regular meetings because we are helped by Anchal, one of the Ripple network engineers. And in one of the meetings, she mentioned the idea and we found the idea immediately amazing. And then the moment we learned about the hackathon, then we said, okay, let's try to build something. Let's build something which is concrete. We'll see if it's working and uh, what we can do with it. It sounds like you find industry, academia, collaboration highly valuable. Yes. It helps us to get insight in where industry is heading. It also helps us to understand what is needed. Because sometimes when you're in the academia, you think that what is needed is what you learn from other papers that are in academic conference, which is useful. But sometimes academic people, they are not able to cover the real problem that industry is having. So working with the industry for us it's, and for our PhD students is a great experience to see what is needing and also be prepared better for the jobs which are, will be there in the future. Well, that's music to my ears because one of the major reasons for Ubery is preparing the workforce of the future. Can you tell us about that project? 
So pacing secure was about linking the concept of your payment relation information that you want to provide, but you also allowing you to control who is accessing it and to make this control like a digital notary. So we implement it on the blockchain such that you specify, okay, I want to allow this entity and we have the notion of digital entity of self-sovereign identity in the our replication such that you can authorize who is going to get what type of payment-related data from you. To make, I know it sounds a little bit complex, but think about like if I like to send you an email, I, I need to basically know which SMTP server is responsible with, with your email address. And this is done in the internet using a mix of DNS and SMTP. If you take PayString, you want to provide PayString relation information to other entities. It can be a wallet, but maybe if you want to think about open banking like services like in Europe, could be also your IBAN account, your bank account. You don't want everybody to be, to be able to access it. So we build a privacy mechanism and security mechanism in this framework. So the students were very happy at the end. So do competitions like this get your PhDs or other students kind of started to get excited for entrepreneurship or, you know, building products or getting into the real world kind of after school? I love to say it, yeah. So not all of our PhD students can go and be successful entrepreneurs, but we have to do everything we can in order to show them the way and to give them the opportunity to be successful. I think hackathons are really great opportunities. So going back to the e-receipt application, what are the next steps? Basically extending it, going for other use cases, integrating, basically making sure that right now you can have your data, but you have a way to monetize it. So linking it to monetizing the data. We submitted a proposal for the grant for the web. There is a specific call for proposal that is being done, run by Mozilla. So we submitted a proposal where we do exactly this. We try to build a framework where we monetize the data. So your data, you will be the one that can monetize it. So you'll propose it and be able to be paid for it. But also building some analytical tools on it. So think about all the kind of receipts that you get from the groceries, putting them all together and giving you insights about the products that you bought and also what we built and is making sure that if you bought, let's say, a specific product and maybe that product was known to be harmful, there were some cases, many cases where some meat was basically sold and then people discovered, well, the meat was too old or it was not properly being packaged, that automatically get informed of it. So it's trying to give some more added value to the end user at the end on his data. So informing him if maybe he bought something that he should not consume and he should bring it back, but also through the end experience of users. Actually, Radu, we just had a podcast episode recently on that about improving food security using blockchain. It was a professor working on a project just like that out of the University of uh, the Virgin Islands. Wow, that's great. How do you see blockchain continuing to mature over the next five years? It will become mainstream. There are two issues that will need to be solved. First of all, it's still the user experience. User experience with blockchain system, it's still in early phase. And still the notion of wallet and having normal users, like people that are not exposed to computer science dealing with a wallet, it's not easy. The user interface, that's the biggest difficulty that we have to solve. And then I think great potential. It's an exciting topic, but not all the topics have to be related to cryptocurrencies. I think there are a lot of application that we can do in agriculture, supply chains, food. You mentioned earlier that there are works on making sure the food safety, uh, that something where blockchain uh, 
definitely has a role to play. I mean, at the moment you can track basically where the food is being processed, how it's going to be processed. In Europe, there's a big project which is funded by the European Commission, which is called From Fork to Fork. So making sure that the whole supply chain, starting from the farm where the food is being produced until the moment where you are consuming the end product, basically the meal, has been properly addressed. So you can track how it was done, where you can also make sure that the conditions in which this food is being produced are sustainable, that they are eco-friendly. And for all this, you need a blockchain, because otherwise, how can you make sure that so many actors will be trusting each other? And I think it's thinking about sustainability, thinking about eco-friendly, thinking about being eco-friendly implicitly, we might be also let's say, deal with uh, climate change or maybe at least delay it as much as we can. But we also need to do a lot of education. I recently proposed basically a blockchain-based project for dealing with healthcare data. And people that had to take the decision, they were managers, they told me, no, we don't want blockchain because we don't want to consume so much energy. Bitcoin consumes more energy than whole Argentina or a whole city in Argentina. And I was trying them to explain. I was trying to explain them that blockchain is not only about mining. It, you can do blockchain also without mining and without this electricity consumption. And there was no way for me to convince them that this is possible. So I was a little bit surprised because you have managers who are not aware that it's not only about Bitcoin mining, and that even though you tell them that you can get consensus and blockchain without this huge energy consumption, that they will not trust you. Well, sustainability anyway, is a very important point, and you, you actually could have shared with them that one of the reasons you chose working on the XRP ledger is because XRP is green. Exactly. You don't do mining. You don't need uh, to have this kind of consensus and uh, basically the proof of work. You have another consensus algorithm which is eco-friendly and green and, and fast. We've actually had researchers do energy consumption models, and they can show you all the different ledgers of XRP is very sustainable. It's very environmentally conscious. So, Radu, where do you want to send people to find out more about your work? Well, as an academic, we have a Google Scholar, which is quite up to date uh, in terms of just academic papers. Otherwise, we have a website, and they could just Google my name, and they will find the website of my team. Well, Radu, you're at the forefront of adopting, innovating, and improving blockchain and also figuring out what it can be used for. Thank you for sharing your work with us. It has been a pleasure hosting you on Uber's podcast, All About Blockchain. And listeners, thank you for giving us your time today. If you have any questions about this episode or feedback for new episodes, please reach out to uberi at ripple.com. <laughs>